This is the Civil Wrongs Podcast, a project of the Institute for Public Service Reporting at the University of Memphis in collaboration with WKNO-FM. Here, we analyze the present-day effects of historical cases of racial terror in Memphis and the Mid-South. I'm your host, Laura Faith Cabetta. This season, we'll explore the lynching of a black man named L. Persons on May 22, 1917. We talk about the experiences of people who are still close to his story and the enduring legacy of police interrogation tactics that can lead to false confessions, just like it did for L. Persons a little over 100 years ago. In this first of three episodes, we take you to the spot in Memphis where the body of a teenage white girl was found brutally murdered and where L. Persons was tied to a log, doused with oil, and burned alive less than three weeks later. We explain what was happening in Memphis at the time that set the stage for this violence and how black Memphians responded by standing up for themselves. There are a few reasons why we think this story is important to tell now. For one thing, this lynching has been described as one of the most violent in American history, with literally thousands of witnesses, yet it's relatively unknown today. This tragedy took place a century ago, yet police practices and racial attitudes that led to L. Persons lynching still show up in today's criminal justice system. And the federal government is currently considering adding lynching sites to the National Park Service to help Americans understand this painful part of our history, and may use L. Persons as the first example. Florida A&M history professor Dr. Darius Young says the story starts with understanding what was happening in Memphis leading up to Persons lynching. He wrote a chapter about L. Persons and the lynching's effect on Black activism in the book An Unseen Light, Black Struggles for Freedom in Memphis, Tennessee. As I'm going back through the documents and looking at the, the previous months, I'm seeing all of this, this talk about Black folks voting in Memphis, which is something that's very unique when we talk about the South in 1916. and all of these articles kept referencing a local Black Memphian by the name of Robert Church Jr. And it was in learning his story and him organizing over 10,000 Black men to vote the previous year that I started to understand the root of the racial tension in the city. It's hard to do that in the South on that type of level because most Black people are still, by design, depending on whites for the everyday survival. So he not only has the wealth just to actually make this thing happen, but he's also not dependent on anyone to support him financially. So it gives him the freedom to be able to operate in that manner and to really speak to those issues. Um, He's still calculated. You know, he's not this rebel rouser, so to speak, right? That he's still very much a calculated person, but It does give him the freedom to be able to do that. Robert Church Jr. was the heir of his father's real estate empire and was a rare black millionaire. Though his organizing was progressive for his time, the crushing prevalence of Jim Crow laws, poll taxes, literacy tests, and other methods to shut out black voters tempered his goals. Um, He'll tell you it's not necessarily about winning an individual election because he still, what he understands is, we're not beating Boss Crump and the Southern Democrats in Memphis. This is not going to happen. Locally, let me try to negotiate things where we can get some concessions. Can we get a school? Can we get sidewalks? Can we get a park? But statewide and nationally, we need to know that 
those Republicans know, that the National Republican Party know that if you plan to be elected to office and that you need folks from the South, your only way of getting that is through Black folks. The white power brokers at the time understood the significance of mobilizing Black voters, even if it wasn't enough to win elections. And as with many cases throughout American history, when Black people make political gains, a violent backlash is close behind. When's the last time you were out here, Margaret? When's the last time you were out here? I cannot actually remember. It was spring. It must have been this spring. Things were not nearly this overgrown. Margaret Vandiver is a retired professor from the University of Memphis. She has spent years studying lynchings and their impact on America's criminal justice system. Based on her research of newspaper articles and other books, she took us to the place at the center of our story. This is the part I was hoping would be mowed. But as you can see, anything but. It's off Summer Avenue, a major thoroughfare in Memphis and near a used car lot. We got there early one morning to beat the relentless summer heat and wore rain boots to avoid ticks. To get to the lynching site, we have to walk through tall grass that hasn't been mowed in months. After about a quarter of a mile, we get to a pond left over from when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers rerouted the Wolf River. If you look across this water, do you see the concrete structure back yeah, there? right next to the power lines. Right under the power lines. The power lines, we believe, mark the course of the old Macon Road. The concrete structure was once the foundation of a bridge. It's all that's left to help mark the spot where somewhere between five and 15,000 people, including women and children, gathered to watch L. Persons burn. It's also the same place where a 15-year-old white girl named Antoinette Rappel was found raped and beheaded after she had been missing for two days. The police report said it was, quote, one of the most fiendish crimes that has startled the people of Shelby County in years. Her bicycle was left about 100 feet off the Macon Road. Her body was found a little bit further off the road in a wooded area. When Persons was lynched, they, I think, quite deliberately went to the spot where Antoinette had been murdered to lynch him at the same spot. And it's hard to imagine now looking at this overgrown, wooded area, but thousands of people came out from Memphis and others gathered from this area, which was an area where woodcutters lived and where um, farmers lived. It was very rural. But many, many people drove out from Memphis. The Macon Road was narrow. Of course, there was no parking. Uh, so people simply abandoned their cars on the side of the road. James Weldon Johnson, better known as the composer of Lift Every Voice and Sing, at that time was a field secretary for the NAACP, which was still a new organization. He was tapped to go to Memphis from New York City to investigate the lynching, and he wrote an eight-page report about it. Years later, he recounted what he saw in his memoir and reflected on how this lynching fit into America's larger story of racism. Here, actor Darius Wallace portrays Johnson. It was in this period that I rushed to Memphis to make an investigation of the burning alive of L. Persons, a Negro, charged with being an axe murderer, 
I was in Memphis 10 days. I talked with the sheriff, with newspaper men, and with a few white citizens and many colored ones. I read through the Memphis papers covering the period. And nowhere could I find any positive evidence that L. Persons was the man guilty of the crimes that had been committed. And yet, without a trial, he was burned alive on the charge. I wrote out my findings, and they were published in a pamphlet that was widely circulated. On the day I arrived in Memphis, Robert R. Church drove me out to the place where the burning had taken place. A pile of ashes and pieces of charred wood still marked the spot. While the ashes were yet hot, the bones had been scrambled for as souvenirs by the mobs. I reassembled the picture in my mind, a lone Negro in the hands of his accusers, who for the time are no longer human. He is chained to a stake, wood is piled under and around him, and 5,000 men and women, women with babies in their arms and women with babies in their wombs, look on with pitiless anticipation, with sadistic satisfaction, while he is baptized with gasoline and set afire. The mob disperses, many of the complaining, they burned him too fast. I tried to balance the sufferings of the miserable victim against the moral degradation of Memphis, and the truth flashed over me that in large measure the race question involves the saving of black America's body and white America's soul. So how did we get here? How did we get to such an inhumane gathering? The details after the break. Hi, I'm Mark Paraskia, Director of the Institute for Public Service Reporting at the University of Memphis. This Civil Wrongs podcast is just one more way Memphis journalism is evolving to keep our community informed. It's also why the Institute exists, to bring deeper context to the stories that shape our lives as Memphians. How do we do it? First, through a collaboration with WKNO and The Daily Memphian. Also, institutions such as Report for America and the Benjamin L. Hooks Institute for Social Change. But nonprofit journalism is a community effort. It takes true believers, supporters like Gail Rose, Jean Jemison, Becky Wilson, Ruby Bright, and Jocelyn Wurstberg. Oh yeah, and you too. Check out what we're doing. Visit psrmemphis.org. No paywall, no ads, no subscription needed. That's psrmemphis.org. And thanks. The murder of 15-year-old Antoinette Rappel was front-page news in a Memphis newspaper, The Commercial Appeal. The report ran next to World War I coverage and a long-running comic strip called Hambone that made fun of black people. Little girl's head severed from body. Brute who attacked girl hacked head from body with axe. May 3rd, 1917. The Commercial Appeal. And from the start, it was the newspapers that introduced the idea that the murderer could be black. From the common racist caricature of Brute to casting suspicions on a group of black woodcutters who happened to walk to work near the crime scene. Their only evidence? One of them did not show up to work that day. Once slavery ended, popular media and literature often portrayed black men as brutes. They said the black man's freedom unleashed insatiable sexual desires for white women. It became the refrain that justified lynchings for decades. 
But even with the media frenzy, city detectives initially thought it was a white man who murdered Antoinette. Her bicycle was found resting against a tree with her belongings undisturbed in the front basket, suggesting that she got off her bike willingly because she knew her murderer. Detectives also found a white handkerchief and a white coat. Those items typically were not associated with black people because the vast majority were poor. But County Sheriff Mike Tate disagreed and continued questioning black men in the area. Even before L. Persons was arrested, the police suspected a lynching was likely. The homicide report said, quote, feeling among the people living near the girl's home is running high and should the slayer be captured, violence is feared. The pressure to find the girl's killer mixed with the baseless suspicion in the newspapers that a black man was responsible, created an environment ripe for injustice. Three events sealed L. Persons fate. First, his former boss, a white man, said that L. Persons scared the man's wife a few months earlier. He claimed that Persons told her that he had a dream about her. Immediately, the boss fired Persons and later said he regretted not killing him on the spot. An article quoted police saying that was enough for them to act. It gave us the first inkling of his brutish proclivities and lost no time taking him into custody. The Commercial Appeal, May 9, 1917. The second event was so unusual that local doctors issued a statement refuting the investigation. There was a bizarre idea at the time that the human eye was a camera so that if someone was murdered, the retina would imprint an image of the murderer. They actually took this seriously enough to exhume the body of Antoinette Rappel. One of her eyes had decomposed. They examined the other one. The commercial appeal said that in her eye there was an image of a large featured man the new scimitar said that in her eye there was an image of L. Persons. Altogether, police arrested L. Persons three times because they didn't have enough evidence to prove he murdered Antoinette Rappel. But since he could not give an adequate explanation about why his acts happened to be missing, they stayed on him. During the final arrest, Sheriff Tate and two detectives, quote, coaxed, cajoled, beat, whipped, and threatened him. Violent interrogations were commonplace then, enough for the method to have its own nickname, the third degree. In a last-ditch effort, the detectives took his shoes, claiming that they saw blood on them. An hour later, they came back with the shoes and declared it was human blood. For Persons, that was the last nail in the coffin. Persons' eyes widened. He shuffled lower in his chair. He gazed down at the floor. Then he half-whispered the words that cleared the most atrocious murder mystery in the history of this country. I did it. I killed her, were Persons' words. NAACP report quoting from the newspaper, the Memphis Press. Much later, an NAACP report showed that the city's chemist did not find any blood on Persons' clothing. But the next day, when Persons' confession hit the media, a highly organized mob formed to exact their own kind of justice outside the law. At first, Sheriff Mike Tate tried to prevent what had been feared since the beginning. He and his deputies whisked persons away for safekeeping in Nashville on May 8, 1917. There had been at least seven lynchings in the county in the previous 25 years, so they were familiar with the methods 
like breaking into the local jail to kidnap and kill the victim. But a group of about 150 men caught wind of the sheriff's plans to take persons to Nashville, the first indication that some law enforcement officers were in on it. The mob met the sheriff at two train stops on the way to Nashville, demanding he hand persons over to them. Somehow, Sheriff Tate convinced the mob that he was transporting a different prisoner. Persons was safe, but not for long. The mob began searching the local jails with permission from law enforcement, and it grew so powerful that one newspaper called the group the Invisible Government. The mob desperately searched for persons, setting up roadblocks and stopping cars with no interference from officers or deputies. After a week of searching, the mob's anger and threats of violence turned toward Sheriff Tate. They were convinced he had persons stashed away somewhere in Shelby County. They started chasing the sheriff, hoping he would lead them to persons. Instead, in a highly unusual move, the sheriff fled town for three days, fearing for his life. The sheriff did not take even members of his family into his confidence, and his son and his brother later started out to search for him. It was not until after midnight that word reached members of his family that he was in no danger. Even then, no information was given out as to where he was. The Commercial Appeal, May 17, 1917. The sheriff eventually returned to Memphis undetected and unharmed. But the winds had clearly shifted in favor of the mob. The sheriff, two judges, and the attorney general all sent a letter to the governor requesting state militia to be present when persons came back to Memphis for his trial. The feeling is very intense, and not only are threats being openly made that the Negro will be lynched as soon as returned, but violence is being threatened against the officials and especially against the sheriff and some of his deputies. Papers of Governor Thomas Clark Rye. Tennessee's governor at the time, Thomas Clark Rye, did not respond. Persons was transported back to Memphis on May 21st with just two deputies. They took an indirect route via train to avoid detection, but it didn't matter. The mob leaders quickly got word of where he would be and when and intercepted the train at a stop in Potts Camp, Mississippi. The group easily overpowered the deputies and sent word that they would lynch L. Persons at the same spot that Antoinette Rappel was murdered. Today, the drive back to Memphis would take about an hour, but the car holding persons captive broke down several times on the way back during a torrential rainstorm and high winds. The trip ended up taking about 15 hours. Still, a crowd started to gather at the lynching site. Some had even waited overnight in anticipation. But news of the capture in the morning's paper really caused the crowd to swell. Mob capture slayer of the Rappel girl. Ail persons to be lynched near scene of murder may resort to burning. The Commercial Appeal, May 22, 1917. They didn't need to fear interference from law enforcement because as one reporter noted years later in his memoir, some of the mob leaders were members of law enforcement. Margaret Vandiver, the researcher who took us to the lynching site, says crowd estimates ranged from five to 15,000 people, including women, children, businessmen, and farmers. Some people even traveled out to the remote location to sell sandwiches, chewing gum, and bottled drinks to make money off of the lynching. Uh, the abductors arrived here with persons about 9 or 9.30 the morning of uh, the 22nd of May, 
and he was lynched almost immediately thereafter. Uh, the victim's mother was brought to the scene and she uh, reportedly stated that she wanted persons to die by burning. Uh, she wanted him to suffer a thousand times more than her daughter had suffered. In the end, several accounts say that person spoke to the crowd, but his voice was soft. The mob leader next to him said that he again confessed and implicated another black man as an accomplice. He was then chained to a log, doused in gasoline, and set on fire. One newspaper reported that the mob forced a 10-year-old black boy to watch his burning body. As with all racial terror lynchings, it wasn't just about punishing an individual for an isolated incident. It was really about sending a message to the larger black community, says Florida A&M history professor Darius Young. After his body is done burning while it's still smoldering, people are rushing the body to cut off souvenirs. And they cut off his finger and his toes and ears, you know, cutting off body parts. And to a lay person, that is gruesome and an unimaginable experience. And then you realize it's part of the ritual. It's part of the lynching ritual. It's not unique. Then after that, someone comes with an ax and chops off his head since, quote unquote, that's what he did to Antoinette Rappel. That still wasn't enough. They take the head and then they get in their cars, wave it out the window and start riding through the black community. Not to just gloat, but to say to them, this is what's going to happen to you if you ever think about touching one of our women or violating any type of unwritten code of racial etiquette in the South during that period. And then the head is thrown on Bill Street, where all the Black businesses are. Black millionaires, that's what Church's office is. That's Robert Church Jr., the voting rights advocate. I don't think that's a mistake. That's where church office is, that's where the church park is, that's where church auditorium is. <laughs> but Black people in Memphis did not heed the warning. Less than a month later, Robert Church Jr. and other Black leaders paid their dues to form a Memphis chapter of the NAACP, only the fourth chapter in the South. That the majority of, the overwhelming majority of the NAACP branches during that time are in Northern cities. It's only a handful in the South because of the type of violence and intimidation in that area and the consequences for establishing something like that. And despite something of that magnitude happening in the city, that Black people still did not acquiesce. Then instead, they came together to make it known to the world that despite whatever you do to us, that we're here to continue to fight for our freedom. A few months after L. Persons was lynched in Memphis, in New York City, 10,000 people remembered him and other lynching victims in a silent march, one of America's first mass demonstrations by Black people. Darius Young says that within two years, the Memphis NAACP chapter became the largest in the South and a headquarters in the region for organizing against racial violence and labor discrimination. The strategies employed here laid the foundation for the civil rights movement decades later, where again, Memphis became both a place of shocking tragedy and stunning Black resistance.
the next episode, we'll talk with L. Person's great-grandniece, relatives of Antoinette Rappel, and the grandson of a man who was in the crowd as Persons burned. I had to reflect on how did I get here? How did I get here when 100 years ago, someone who is a part of me was murdered in such a way? Civil Wrongs is a project of the University of Memphis's Institute for Public Service Reporting. It's recorded and written by me, Laura Faith Cabetta. Our podcast is produced by Christopher Blank with WKNO-FM. Our original music was composed by Andrew J. Crutcher. Special thanks in this episode to Memphis actors Darius Wallace, Marcus Cox, Sam Weekly, and Dave Landis for voicing the headlines. This work is made possible by donations to the Institute for Public Service Reporting, WKNO-FM, and Report for America. For books and resources mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes or the article you clicked on to listen to this podcast. (laughs) 